Okay, here we go. We're up and operating. April the 9th, 2017, lecture discussion number 278, I hope that's right. Could not, maybe it's not on the book of Romans. I got another thumb telling me I'm right on the number. That's fantastic. Well, now, um, we really are nearing the end of this segment of mine that is focusing on the trial of Adam, Eve, and Satan for now. Just a few things to attend to. Um, and we'll be out of here and back to Revelation. Actually, we act, we've just barely begun doing the trial of Adam and Eve and Satan. I could spend m- many, many months on it, as you know. It's our usual shallow examination is all that I ever have time for, and hopefully you'll be inspired on your own to continue if you find it something that you wish to become learned in. So what I'm going to do today is try to clean up some of the more wanting particulars Uh, Those areas that I've only quickly raised, and again, for those of you guys on the Internet, that would be you guys who have recently joined us. My methodology is to focus on as many questions as possible. Some will say as few answers as possible also. That's not completely true, but I would rather err on the side of the questions. Find the questions first, in other words. The purpose or the logic then is, is that if the questions are known the answers are a mere eventuality. So I have been trained to ask questions, and I found it to be the most effective way. Some might characterize this as Socratic—I'm sorry, Socratean or Socratic. Others, Aristotelian. This is Aristotle. It's my aim to kind of be a hybrid between Socrates and Aristotle in the way I approach things. All the while I note that God himself, Jesus Christ himself, God creator, asked a lot of questions. So clearly the Bible, his word is designed around a question format. And I submit the evidence provided of how we should approach his scripture is exactly for that reason. Let me interject the obvious, though, before I go on. God is omniscient, duh. When omniscient God, duh, asks a question, duh, immediately we should know that this is an incredible circumstance. Why would an omniscient being ask a question? Omniscience by definition means knowing all things. That's John 21, 17. Let me say this in John 19, 28. Peter asked Christ's or is responding to Christ's question, do you love me? Some people think that the, that there's different kinds of love being illustrated there, and they change the word, but the word for love in the Greek is interchangeable all over the place, and so you can't say this word for love in the Greek is better than that word, or deeper, or more significant. They're all interchanged. So it isn't about the love, it's about do you know? The word is, the issue is the know, and until... Um, Peter says, you know all things, and that's a declaration of Christ's omniscience, therefore his godhood. Finally now, he is eligible for service. You have to know Christ is God, omniscient God, in order to be valuable as a witness. No offense. Your witness is absolutely at the bare minimum if you do not know that Christ is creator God in the flesh. And that, the, it's the height of disrespect to impart our human uncertainty. We ask questions because we don't know what we're doing. He never does that. Never. 
It's impossible. Again, it is disrespectful, dishonoring to Christ, to God, to think that he does not, or to impart our human questioning to him. It's, and that's the common teaching all over the world today. Everyone wants Christ to be less than God, except a very few. That is the end of the age of the Gentiles. More on that later. You'll see that at Genesis 18:16 through 32. That is Abraham and God arguing, it appears, can't be true, that's omniscient God. It appears that omniscient God is asking a question that he asks, that Abraham answers. That can't be true. If that's your evaluation of that text, you are horribly wrong. Try again. I, I don't know what else to tell you. Luke 8:45. The woman reaches and he turns around and says, "Who touched me?" He's omniscient God. He knows every every possible thing about her including the name that he has for her. So, those are the most obvious examples, but it's all throughout the church. The church is marinated in disrespect for Jesus Christ and God and the triune Godhead. It's anthropomorphic, as you know. Anthropomorphization, if you will. Assigning to the Creator all things... Uh, I'm sorry. Assigning to the Creator of all things our human sinful frailty. Every time I stumble over a word, you've noticed that I take a sip of medicine. I'm going to need more medicine as I'm aging. Ask this question, why does the church constantly do this? Why the great disrespect for Christ's omniscience that's in the church? Why? What's the point? Why does the church insist on it? Is this a Socratic or is it an Aristotelian question, by the way? Ugh. That cost me some chili right there. Today is chili day for those of you on the internet. Next week is prime rib day. Everyone laughed. Okay, I'll settle for uh, all meat pizza on on first fruits. That's got to be religious. Okay, never mind. Why does the church seemingly despise the the deity of Christ? That's a question that I have wrestled with for a while. Uh, I think I know the answer. Clearly, the incessant attempt by the contemporary church to devour, I'm sorry, to devalue Christ is intentional. They intentionally do it. It isn't accidental that they're neglecting the deity of Christ. They're not doing it because, what's that word I want? They're stupid. They're doing it because they want to do it. It is pure intentional. Purposeful. So why? It is certainly blasphemy to devour. Devour. My goodness, why do I like that word? I might need a six-pack today. It's blasphemy to devalue Christ's deity. It's heresy. Absolute, indefensible heresy. But it goes on every day in almost every church in this country now. Ask why? Is it profitable? Ask why it's profitable. Why is passion so able to be capitalized, more so able to be capitalized than reason? I listened to a gentleman explain this. He did it in a funny way. I just happened to come across it. Actually, Lori looked him up. 
and found it. And he pointed out that the song Feelings sold lots of copies. The song Think sold nothing. Feelings overwhelms thinking. That is the condition of the church. That is why they devalue the deity of Christ. Because his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnibenevolence, his omnipresence, that requires reasoning, thoughtfulness, measuredness. And it does not prevail. The contemporary church is the church. Our contemporary time, the church of our time, is Revelation 3.16. There's no question in my mind that's the case. We are witnessing the vomit church in our lifetime. And they have figured out why Feelings are, uh, are more capitalized than reason. The numbers have been established. There isn't any debate. The debate has long been determined. It's over. Wisdom has, the pursuit of wisdom has no audience. Look at your colleges. If I only gave loans to the engineering, the biological and chemical sciences, uh, I would give out, what, 20,000 loans a year maybe? The colleges are teaching feelings. We're overrun. We're marinated in it. Why would the church be any different? Everybody is, is pursuing the money. Wisdom has no audience. Very little. Passion, however, is monstrous. It has enthusiasm. It has the great following. We have now, we are now witnessing the prophecy of 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 6. The end of the church age, the end of the age of the Gentiles, will be a time of departure from the faith. What does that mean? What faith? What part of faith are we talking about? Faith in who? What is required? What part of the faith is missing? The name of Christ will not be spoken in the church at the end of the age of the Gentiles. And I'll tell you, that's going on now. I talk to people all the time. It's God, 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 God. I never hear Jesus Christ ever from these guys. It's, everything's God. Just once, just once a Sunday, say Jesus Christ is God. Just give me one. I'll take it. But they don't. Why? It's offensive. God, 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 God. And it drives me absolutely out of my mind, which isn't hard anymore. I'm ranting, aren't I? Yes, I am. Sorry. Not really. Sorry. The name of Christ will not be spoken. The departure from the faith will come. And I believe we are in the midst of it. And it is... It is going to get so worse. Second Timothy 4, lies, hypocrisy, fables, itching ears. The church is going to disintegrate into these kinds of conditions. The church will not tolerate sound doctrine. The truth of Christ is the sound doctrine. The deity of Christ is the faith. You must believe he is God, John 8, 24, or you will perish. He's the I am. Why wouldn't you say that? Every Sunday, John 8. The truth of Christ will disappear and desire will rule. Second Timothy. First Timothy 6.20. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane. Paul calls the, the deity of Christ being destroyed profanity. The idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
And again, I'm positive, I could be wrong, I'm positive that this is the time of 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy 4 and 6. 2 Timothy 4 and 1 Timothy 4 and 6. We are in, in this time. Look around. All you, turn on your TV and look at some of these late channels and see who is babbling, who is saying things that are falsely called knowledge, who is doing the profane heresies with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. It's easy to see. Committed to your trust. What exactly was committed to the trust of Timothy? The truth of the identity of Jesus Christ, his absolute Godhood. Okay. I'm done with that. Back we go to Genesis 3 today. This thing, or this, Satan has said, because you have done this, you are cursed. What is the this of that sentence? And then the symbolism of the snake. Before we go back to that, there's a few items of, of interest today in the, in the media that should be included the geopolitical military. And hopefully, every one of you are obeying Christ's direct order. Matthew 24, 42, Mark 13, 35, Luke 21, 36. Watch, therefore, now is the time to get away from your from what we're doing and pay attention. Watch, therefore. It's a direct order. It is not a suggestion. Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, the I Am, issued a declarative statement. It is a commandment. Don't ignore it. You have to watch. It isn't advice. I can't make you do it. You need to find the will to do it yourself. Why is he telling us to watch therefore? The United States, as you know, bombed a Syrian air base from which chemical weaponry, sarin gas, where did they get the sarin gas? How old is the sarin gas? How did it get into Syria? Who had sarin gas? Who's the last one to use sarin gas? Where did he use it? On whom did he use it? How did it, is it the same sarin gas? Anyway, the United States bombed a Syrian air base. A plane had sarin gas. It dropped it on what the, uh, what the Syrian government considered rebel uh, enclaves, and it mostly killed women and children. And this is causing the obvious question. Why would they do this? Why would Bashar Assad use sarin gas? In this time, as Bill the Cow pointed out, of tremendous communicative capabilities, it's impossible to get away with this. There is no possibility that he didn't know that. You see, Assad does nothing without the assent and foreknowledge of Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah. They are four in accord. Assad's very survival requires that he listen to the Russian. You should be aware, if you're watching, therefore, who's at that base that that plane took off from, besides the Syrian military? The Russians are at that base. How much involvement did the Russians have? They certainly are a protector of that base. They had to be notified that that base was going to be attacked by U.S. military systems 
in order to not kill any of the Russians. As you know, the Russian government has said to the United States government, don't bomb that base again. So you can see what's happening here. We have nuclear powers all in the same spot. I've said that for weeks now. Watch, therefore. So why did Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah agree that it's a good idea to use sarin gas on rebel civilians? Civilians uh, that are part of the rebel force system. And actually, in my view, they directed Bashar Assad to do it. Bashar Assad is the weakest of all of those groups. So I believe that he was told to do it. And they're telling him to violate international law. He knows that. He's committing what kind of crime? Using chemical weapons. He's committing a war crime. What is the punishment if he's ever caught? He'll be summarily executed. He knows that. He'll face a tribunal. He released that sarin gas on civilians with every intent you could imagine. So what's he thinking? And who? what is the thinking of the people who, uh, who organized and came to the conclusion that this was the right thing to do? In other words, what's the end game of this, the calculations involved? Syria is prevailing now in its civil war, as you know, and Russia is slaughtering the anti-Assad forces. The inevitability of victory for this current regime of Bashar Assad is not in doubt. He is going to maintain power. His, they're, they're, the rebel forces are in disarray. ISIS is slowly being extinguished. Sarin gas seems to be completely unnecessary. Why would you do it? What's the purpose, the true purpose of the sarin gas? Because it makes no reasonable, rational sense. There is no reason to have done it. And I asked a few weeks ago, maybe you remember, I asked, why was Israel bombing Syrian targets? Do you remember me asking that? Israel is bombing Syrian targets. And they're doing it consistently. Why are they doing that? And I submit that these Israeli attacks and the sarin gas, they're, in my opinion, they're closely joined. They're traceable. Because how do I know that? At the end of the time of the Gentiles, the church won't even know who Jesus Christ is. That's happening. At the end of the time of the Gentiles, the world will begin to isolate Israel and and withdraw from defending Israel. At the end of the age of the time of the Gentiles, Israel will be the number one focus of the world, period. The Bible tells us everyone in the world will try to kill the Jews. That's what's going to happen. So I'm just going to be logical. If everything, Revelation, book of Revelation is about Israel after chapter 4, or at the beginning of chapter 4, everything will be about Israel, so I'm assuming that this is about Israel. So the calculation would be, let's kill civilians of rebel forces, the wives and children, with sarin gas, because that has some impact on Israel. Israel is blowing those convoys up. What's in the convoy? Why is Israel blowing the convoys up? 
is, to rephrase this, is the sarin gas a response to the Israeli Air Force forays? Who's the most affected by Israel's actions of blowing up these supply line systems that are coming out of Syria into Hezbollah? Well, clearly it's Hezbollah. What was Syria trying to send to Hezbollah? What does Hezbollah do without fail when they get enough of it? What do they do? They launch missiles into Israel, don't they? And Israel sends its military up there and destroys all of their systems and the process rinse and repeat. Hezbollah is clearly the most affected by the Israeli Air Force striking those systems. Bill the Cow, for weeks now, has reminded the, this class of the missile math every time he can. And he's absolutely right. The Iranians, the Russians, are engaged in counting missiles. That's what they're doing. And Israel is counting missiles. Everybody in the Middle East is counting missiles. Every single country. Why are they counting missiles? Because, as you know, the Iranians intend to overwhelm the Israeli missile defense technologies. They intend to overload it with incoming ballistic rockets. Some of those will carry more catastrophic payloads than others. And Israel will have have to make decisions constantly. Which ones will they destroy? Which ones will go through? Can they stop them all? And obviously, if and when the relentless enemies of Israel reach their agreed-upon numerical threshold, the entire Middle East explodes into total war. You understand what I mean by that? When enough missiles are ready to fire at Israel, that Israel's defense system can't knock them all down, the Middle East will blow into total war. Because what must Israel do? They have no choice. When the threshold is near, then they have no other option. And they will launch preemptively. No doubt they will. Their very existence requires it. So again, what is this sarin gas mass killing about? It's about Israel. How is it about Israel? Is it a test? Did the Russians expect Israel to destroy that Syrian air base or shoot down that plane? Because they could have. What was intended? Did they think that the uh, Israeli aircraft uh, would launch and engage? And if they did, would the Russians respond? Would they intercept with Russian fighters? Because anything like that in the Middle East goes off. And it's so very close. We can't determine. I don't know for sure what's going on. I just know that it's about Israel. But in this case, the U.S. intervened and utilized its naval cruise missiles, and Israel did not participate beyond consultations and military intelligence and satellite imagery. But again, we are told to watch, therefore. Watch for the Battle of Jerusalem. Another Battle of Jerusalem is coming. It's going to happen in our lifetime. And here we go again. And we know Russia will come for spoil, Ezekiel 38, 10 through 11. Russia will form an evil plan, Ezekiel 38, 10. It's just a matter of time. The Bible says Russia will form an evil plan. So every time an evil plan is 
divulged or enacted, I know the Russians are doing it. Sarin gas killed a lot of children. What is the true purpose? Okay, we also know along these lines, Revelation 20, 7 through 9. We know that there will be a final battle for Jerusalem. We're not there yet. We're going to cover that here in a few weeks. We're going to start going over all of the battles of Jerusalem. But let me, all battles of Jerusalem are related, in my opinion. Let me give you 27 through 9. This is the last battle over Jerusalem. And so the obvious question will leap off and smack you in the forehead. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That is the second. You have to know your Magog Gogs. There's two Magog Gogs. This is the second Magog Gog. Magog Gog first and Magog Gog second are not the same Magog Gog. Does that make sense? Got to know. Differentiate between Magog Gog. This is the last Magog Gog. This is the last battle for Jerusalem. There is no battle after this. What's the obvious question? Or I would call it the most important of the important questions. When was the first battle for Jerusalem? Wouldn't we expect that all battles over Jerusalem would return to the first battle of Jerusalem? I would say we should expect that. Some, some is a relative term, say the first battle for Jerusalem was Melchizedek, Genesis 14. And that's definite. He is, the, he is the king of Jerusalem, the king of peace and the high priest of God. He has both king and priest titles. That makes him Christ, God himself in the flesh. So there's Jesus Christ at Jerusalem talking to Abraham and Satan. We've gone over that many times. Those of you on the Internet, it's somewhere on the Internet. Right to Supper Dave, who really does exist. Somebody said this. On, it's hilarious. The people that listen to us are so incredible. I don't even know what to say. They, they said that, uh, that I have created this uh, character. I do agree the person is a character. That's accurate. But I have created this false persona uh, and, uh, of Supper Dave so that I can get two, two helpings of cake at the buffet, among other things. It isn't true. You can, you can search him and find out his criminal record. It's, uh, it's all there. You have to pay five, six bucks, I think, but uh, you can find him. He's there. Don't worry about it. We do, however, both race for the cake table. That's, that's, that's true. We are competing in that sense. And again, back to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is post-flood. I will say to you, is it likely that the first battle for Jerusalem was pre or post flood? Nonetheless, it is a battle over Jerusalem, Genesis 14. It establishes Sodom's, um, I'm sorry, establishing Sodom's exact location. That's a priority for any discussion of Genesis 14. 
But I don't think that that is the first battle over Jerusalem. I think it is a battle over Jerusalem. So where, again, is the first? Keep answering, asking the question. Another off-the-subject question that ties into all this somehow. Why do advanced ages, every time we get hundreds of years of human capability with regard to their lifespan, what do we always get? Advanced aging. So if I have multiple, uh, I have hundreds of years of lifespan, hundreds of years of lifespan, what always happens? Equals, it all, yeah, that person who you, some of you think don't exist, doesn't exist, said boom, lack a lack a lack. Yeah, a violent, lustful, bloodlust, murder, murderous, pick your word, murderous. Every time humanity gains an extension of their lifespan and their aging is truncated and they have a youthfulness, they always become horrifically murderous. That's what happens. Why does adding to our lifespan cause murder? Where is the first battle of Jerusalem? When we finally get back to Revelation 17, we're going to try to resolve those questions. Okay? But today, now, back to where we were. We are at Genesis 3. I'm getting asked occasionally from people from the Internet, why do you have two Bibles? Because the first part of my Bible that is at least 15 years old has been destroyed beyond my ability to decipher so I have to utilize Henry Morris, whom I really appreciate. It's all I can do for now. So, here we go. Genesis 3.14. Let's take another run at this. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because you have done this. What's the this that he did? Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle. And above every beast of the field, upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So let's break it down, just in case you didn't see all the pieces. Because you have done this. What is the this? Cursed above all cattle. What is that about? Cursed above every beast. Upon your belly. This is the snake symbol, as you know, but it is also has great symbolism and literalcy. In other words, this is literal. Dust you shall eat. So there are the five. 
that are part of Genesis 3.14. Again, this is the curse of the serpent or the symbol of Satan that is the snake. It is a continual reminder to somebody who has to know this. Somebody has to know that because Satan did something, what is it that he did exactly? He became cursed above all cattle and he became cursed above every beast and upon his belly He's going to crawl, and he'll crawl in the dust, and then he will eat the dust. That is the curse of Satan, and it is a continuing reminder for somebody. Us, obviously, are we the only somebodies to have to know this about Satan. Now, commentators of Genesis 3.14 usually approach Genesis 3.14 from a human perspective. They assume that the continuing, continual, or continuing reminder is for all of humanity, only humanity. It's for us. So we're supposed to know this. I disagree, as you know. I think it's not just for us. Who else is involved? Who else needs to know something about Satan's curse? Clearly the angelic realm does. The angels are also involved. They watched the trial. They heard the sentencing of Satan. Did they know in advance that Satan was going to try to take out Adam? They did. Was it successful? Timothy says it wasn't. Did they know in advance that he was going to go after Eve next or the woman next? Very likely. These are highly intelligent beings. They're watching. And then they watched the trial, and then they heard the sentencing of Satan, and both the unfallen and the wicked angels witnessed all of this. As you know, one of the New Testament compliments to Genesis 3 is Matthew 4, where we have the contest. That's a terrible word, because it isn't a contest between God and Satan there. Jesus Christ, the I Am, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, and Satan is in Matthew 4. And the angels are especially consequential in that. And it says so at Matthew 4.11. Behold, let me jump up and down. This is me jumping. Behold, the angels came after that and did something. What did they do? They ministered to him. It is a behold. It's so amazing. So much doctrinal truth there. What is the doctrinal truth about angels coming to minister to Christ after he destroys Satan in a confrontation? God destroys Satan in a confrontation. Is that big news? God wins jeopardy. Is that big news? He's better at Scrabble than you? Why is it that when God defeats Satan, that the angel is a behold? What great truth is revealed at Matthew 4? How does an angel minister to God? Why did the angels come to minister to Christ at that exact moment? What happened to Satan that was just before that? Oh, he's gone forever. Okay. What will I do? Oh, I have to have it. I know what's coming. Yes, I know. It's pathetic. Last year, as you know, I fell off a scaffolding and destroyed that kneecap. 
and it swelled up the size of, oh, I don't know, it was about, about that big. And then in my first game of attempting to reclaim my glory playing softball, I got hit in the tibia uh, with about a 95-mile-an-hour softball. Because why? Did I put my tibia, that exact leg, right in front of the softball on purpose? Apparently, I did. Because I had no ability to get out of the way. And people ask me, how come you didn't have some kind of protective device, oh, Mr. Baseball Wizard? Softball phenom? Why didn't you cover yourself with armor? Because I'm an idiot. That's why. And I was playing third base. And you know why I was playing third base? Because I happened to be the one that they said would enjoy it the most. I should have been suspicious. <laughs> anyway, the leg is not working well. I fall a lot off of ladders. Me and ladders are in conflict and have been for quite some time now, haven't we, Bill? Bill and I, we fought ladders and they, they tore us both to pieces. It's almost over. That's the other bill. For those of you on the internet, we have two bills. One's the bill and the other is the other bill. Okay, enough of that. Why did the angels come to Christ at this exact time? When, what happened right before it? Was, people have some of the most, is God awful okay to say? Is that, I don't know what to say. They, they think that Christ was tired. He was exhausted. He was hungry. He needed grapes or bread or something, a ham sandwich. And so the angels brought him food and maybe played music for him. Without any concept that he's creator God, that he is the creator of those angels. Did they bring something to Christ? Yes or no? They did. What did they bring? Does Creator God need something? You think of something that God needs. Get back to me. Um, what does God want versus what does He need? What did they bring to Him? And again, don't fall into the common disrespectful passion emotional snares out there. God is joyful when? When is He joyful? When does, when is, what makes Him joyful? That's absolutely right. From the front row of that person that doesn't really exist. I'm talking to myself, apparently. <laughs> and, and I've invented this false wife of his, too, who also laughs at my jokes. She's why we keep her on. That's it. I'm kidding. What did the angels, what makes God happy? Why does he express himself with great joy? He does that when created beings come to him believing him. The behold is some, something is really wrong here. And it's changing because of that Matthew 4, 4 confrontation. So what did the angels finally, I'll throw that in there, believe about Jesus Christ, the last Adam, at the conclusion of his encounter with the serpent, what did the angels then know? Anyway, 
the entirety of the angelic realm was present at the, at the trial of Satan and heard those five things. How do I know that? The fallen angel saw and heard the verdict against Satan. How do I know that? They would have known the difference, wouldn't they, between Satan's unfallen state. Every one of those angels, fallen and unfallen, would know that Satan had an unfallen state, right? And they would know what he was like. Now they see him in a fallen state. They have the perspective that only they can have. Oh, and I said that, didn't I? Ooh, here comes an email. Did Adam ever see Satan in an unfallen state? Yes or no? The angel certainly did. His fallen state is in front of them now. And now, of course, he has another state. So let's put Satan's states on. He has an unfallen state. Would you agree with that? He has a fallen state. So far, so good. We're all in agreement. And to make it three for three, he now has what kind of state? Oh, yes. He has a cursed state. So Satan... Staten, Satan apparently has three states. <sighs> There's not enough Diet Coke in the world to get me through my life. It's just going to be bad. And again, to demonstrate addictive thinking, I'm going to tell you that if it wasn't for the Diet Coke, I would be much worse than I am now. It has stopped me from... De- Never mind. That is addictive thinking, as you know. But the angels would see all three of those states. His unfallen state, his fallen, and now his cursed. So, obvious question. What's the difference? Let's just take on this one. What's the difference between his fallen and his state and his cursed state? Because they're different. Cursed state has been described. These are in addition to your fallen state. We have a fallen state that is clearly distinct from an unfallen. Now we have a curse that adds those five components. What was Satan like before he was cursed? What was he like before he was typified by a snake or a serpent? Keep in mind, for us, physical death is the temporal separation of the living soul from the physical body. That is physical death. There's also a second death, right? And that is the eternal separation of the living soul from the Creator God. If you study your scripture, you'll see there's a resurrection of the unbelievers. And God takes their living souls and puts them back together with their body and then He separates that living soul and that body away from Him. Everyone is resurrected. It is your destiny that is at issue. Your destination. Not your resurrection. So, the the second death, the eternal separation of the living soul from the Creator God. And that should move you along a, a bit in this discussion. Now, with this on the board, let's talk about cattle. And every beast and eating dust. I'll put those on the board. I'll pull them out. I don't have to. I'll just circle them. That'll be judicious. Eating dust. Eat dust. I'm leaving out belly. Why would I do that? It's clearly significant. 
But today, for today, cattle, beast, and eat dust. What does eat dust mean? What does cattle mean? What does every beast mean? Cursed above every beast. What is, what do they mean? What is meant by each one separately? Cattle, every beast, and eat dust. And then what? What will we do? Once we figure out what this means and what this means and what this means, what, what are we going to do? What do we always do? We add them together. What are they collectively? What are they individually? Clearly, when they are assembled, they portray the final end of Satan and his angels. So, knowing that, in other words, this is Satan's finality, if you will. This is his, he has done this. And because he has done this, have you established what this was yet? Because he did this, he ends up in a final situation. Let's go and explain that a little bit in Matthew 25. One of my favorite verses in Matthew, I have to say, because questions are just incredible. Uh, 25.41. Let me put it on for the internet. Matthew 25.41. Here it goes. Then he will also say on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed. Don't worry, they're related to me. Babies can cry here all day. The adults cry here all day, so it's not only fair. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed. Into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's some key information. Key information. What's the first question? The lake of fire is prepared for who? It's prepared for Satan and the fallen angels. What's the first question? What comes next? What hits you upside the face? When? When did this happen? When did the lake of fire get created? Adam saw the flame at the tree of life, the protector, the protecting of the tree of life. Satan saw the lake of fire being created. Both of them saw a flame. When did Satan see the lake of fire? It seems fairly apparent that all cattle and every beast and eat dust, again, are three parts of the whole. And, they, and again, they speak of Satan's final abode, if you will, his final destination. All of this is about his final destination, not just him, but his angels too. If this is his second death, what becomes the next question? What was his first death? When was his first death? Where was his first death? Essentially, I'm asking you to contemplate the time sequence and the connectivity of the lake of fire and the sentencing of Satan at Genesis 3. How close are they on your timeline? Which do you think came first? You have a timeline. Here you are. Where would you like to put the creation of the lake of fire? Let's fall for, for fun. Let's put the lake of fire right here. This is fantastic artwork. 
There it is. I want you now to place Satan's trial. Where do you put it? I want you to face. Uh, I want you to place Satan's um, fall. So we have. I want you to put his. Was when was the lake of fire created in state in Satan's unfallen condition, or in his fallen condition, or in his cursed condition? You pick. Everyone can vote now. Ready? Number one. You won't get any chili. Maybe a little chili. Maybe the hot chili is all you get. You pick which one of those lines up with this lake of fire. And you put Satan in your timeline in your spare time. Ha, 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 ha. I have to laugh at my own jokes now. They're that bad. Allow me to throw in the access that Satan has until Revelation 12. He has access to where? He has access to the heavenly estate. He has the ability to function, operate as an accuser before the throne in the throne room of God. And that ends in Revelation 12. Why does it take till Revelation 12 for it to end? Why does Satan even have this accusatory agreement, accusatory authority, authorization? When did it happen that he was allowed to accuse was he allowed to accuse in the fallen state or the cursed state? We didn't have any humanity really here, did we? Uh-oh. When do we have humanity? Before he fell or after he fell? He had a lot of work to do. When did he get to be accuser? When he, after he was cursed? When was the lake of fire done? Was he the accuser after the lake of fire or before the lake of fire? It was created for Satan and his unfallen angels. What does that tell you? First, I have to have Satan fallen and, I'm sorry, fallen angels. I said unfallen. I, I don't need, it was created for the fallen angels and the fallen Satan. Before he was cursed, before he did this, or after he did this. Did the, Fallen angels watching this sentence see the creation of the lake of fire that is that is happening simultaneously to that sentence. Okay, I'm running out of my allotted time. Chili's got to come here. Got to pick up the pace. I'm getting quite a few phone calls on cattle because of its prominence to the curse of Satan. And we have Bill the cow here. That seems appropriate. And he's particularly interested in cattle. He is. It's something he talks to me about consistently. And uh, you might expect that he would be. I'm, I think it's absolutely fantastic that he is. He's become expert on this topic. And all those who are writing to me thinking I don't. There it is. All of you out there. To think that I don't care. Here we go. Bill the cow has been talking to me about this for how long, Bill? Bill? Yeah, a couple of years. And he is, as I said, a, uh, he has an understanding of it that is very technical and very expensive. And as you know, those of you who do, the bulls of Bashan, the bulls are what? What are bulls? Oh, look. They be cattle. 
particular kind of cattle. We're trying to figure out what this cattle means. He's going to be cursed above all the bulls, all the cattle. So who are the bulls? And this is a Psalm 22 uh, reference, mostly thought to be a Psalm 22 reference. It's not. Uh, Psalm 22.12 discusses this. Psalm 22, as you know, is a, a prime example of Hebrew double reference. In other words, some of those some of those passages are referring to Christ, but most of them are referring to Israel. You have to decide whether or not you can surround infinity. Okay, those of you who think it's possible to surround infinity, have at it. So would Christ discuss himself this way, or would Israel do? Right now, is Israel surrounded? They are indeed. The bulls of Bashan are mentioned 60 times in the Old Testament. And Psalm 22 is an extraordinarily difficult uh, passage to process. It's, again, Hebrew double reference throughout. Not double fulfillment. Double reference. Bashan was the kingdom of Og. Og was a Rephium. Do you know what a Rephium is? He's the king. Rephium has a heavy death component in its meaning as well as giganticism. It has a Genesis 6 Nephilimic aspect. So i got a question about what, what does Genesis 6 have to do with this? Well, Genesis 6 is involved because of, of the giganticism, the Nephilimic aspects. It also has, Rephium has a demonic or a fallen angel element to it. So I have all of that with respect to the bulls of Bashan. So how does Genesis 6 fit into the meaning of the cattle symbol, if it does. And I think it will. Perhaps next week we can take a run at it. Bulls of Bashan is a mountain. Sixty mentions. It will require me to set aside my entire itinerary. But I'm getting a lot of response on it, so I, I might just go ahead and, and fire at it for a couple of weeks if I have to, I guess. Finally for today, because I'm out of time, Adam is to have sorrow in eating from the ground for all the days of his life. Did I put that on here? All the days of your life you will eat dust. So Satan has all the days. Adam has all the days. And Adam has got sorrow in eating for all the days of his life. Eve is to have sorrow in childbirth. Satan is to eat dust all the days of his life. So notice the similarities and the differences. Satan and Adam have this for all the days of your life commonality as well as eating. One eats dust, the other eats of the ground. What's the difference between the ground and the dust? There's obviously a difference. What does dust mean? What does ground mean? The woman and Adam have sorrow, and there's your solution to all of this. Yay, we could eat chili. The woman and Adam have sorrow. What is the implication of that? That's incredible. Well, the answer would be, of the three, Eve, Adam, and Satan, how many have sorrow? How many are there? One of them has no sorrow. Is having sorrow. You see, we read having sorrow and we think, oh, that's bad. You have sorrow. 
Is sorrow bad or good? Your chili depends on it. Does God have sorrow? Christ is the man of sorrows. Is sorrows bad or good? Think it through. The woman and Adam have sorrow. Satan has no sorrow. He did this without sorrow. Satan has no mourning, no regret. He has no sadness. Does God have sadness? Is sadness bad? Yeah, you'll you'll philosophically evaluate what happens to you if you have none. Do you want your child to have no sadness? No sorrow? No regret? Satan has none. That's greatly significant. Adam has deep sorrow. The woman has deep sorrow. God has deep sorrow. What is, what, when you have deep sorrow, what happens to you? You get saved. People with no sorrow are, what do we call them? Sociopaths. Pathological. Murderous, killing, lustful, blood-sucking, deviant killers. So, now you've got that. What specifically causes Adam to weep? Every time he eats of the ground, he weeps. Every time the woman has a child, she weeps. That one's pretty easy, isn't it? Every child she gives birth to is going to have what experience? Death. Who caused it? She did. Why does he have sorrow every time he eats? Figure that out and you can have some chili. The musicians come forward with great enthusiasm. 